In this episode of 9 to Y Talks, New York Times reporter Nicholas Kristof sits down with Congressman Adam Schiff, chair of the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. They discuss the issues behind today's biggest news stories, including the investigation of Russia's interference in the 2016 election and its implications for 2020, the release of the Mueller report, and more. The conversation was recorded on October 14, 2019, in front of a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. This is indeed the hardest ticket to get in New York tonight. Uh, one of these is, is worth 10 Hamiltons. Uh, <laughs> and um, since it's kind of a quiet time in Washington, <laughs> I, I wanted to just start by asking, uh, by f- finding out a little bit about, about you, about your roots. Um, you, were, you grew up in Massachusetts, uh, Arizona, and California. I think your dad was a, a lumberman, but you grew up in something kind of exotic these days, a, a mixed household, Republican and Democratic. You have Republican roots. I do, I do. Uh, in fact, if you come by my office, I have a wonderful photograph of my mother's father with uh, Eisenhower and Henry Cabot Lodge. He was the Republican county chairman uh, in a, a county in western Massachusetts. And uh, my mother and uh, all that side of the family were Republicans, uh, and my father's side of the family were all Democrats. I think you said that your grandfather never uttered the word Democrats alone. No, it was usually those damn Dems. <laughs> um, but I have to say he had kinder words for Democrats than he did for the Red Sox, um, <laughs> which were always a bunch of bums. <laughs> well, and I think a lot of folks here, when they walked... Uh, through the lobby, they might not have noted it, but there is a, a reference to a Schiff in the lobby, and tell me about that. There is, uh, Jacob Schiff was a wealthy bank, banker, philanthropist around the turn of the century, and I think he had a role in the establishment of this why. Uh, and when I was elected to Congress, I got a letter from the Jewish Historical Society of New York asking me about my background. And it was a form letter, but the executive director wrote a little handwritten note, are you by any chance related to the famous Jacob Schiff? Uh, And I wrote back and said that yes, in fact, Jacob Schiff was my great-grandfather. Regrettably, though, it was Jacob Schiff the kosher butcher. Um, (laughs) Not the wealthy philanthropist I miss by that much. (laughs) Well, I should have done my research a little better, clearly. (laughs) So um, you went to uh, Stanford and, you know, in journalism there's a category of story we call too good to check, and this kind of falls in that, in that. But, but I read somewhere that you, were debate, that you were both pre-med and pre-law because you were debating whether you wanted to be a doctor or a lawyer, and in the end you went to law school really because that seemed, you wanted to go into politics and law seemed more in keeping with a career in politics. Is that, is that right? Yes, and, and uh, I have to say, first of all, um, what a cruel thing it was for, uh, for me to get that close to my son, the doctor, or a <laughs> Jewish mother, and then snatch it all away by going to law school. Um, but I, I remember having the conversation with my folks when I, because I had procrastinated as long as possible about what I was going to do with my life, that I had decided to go to law school and uh, I said, uh, you know, when I, when I pick up Time magazine, I never flip to the what's new in medicine section. I want to read about what's going on in the world and uh, public affairs and 
my father said, well, you know, you tell me that you're interested in the law and I would think certain aspects of corporate law would be fascinating. But you tell me you're interested in politics, that just makes me nauseous. Um, but he came around, he came around. And he's, he and my mother were, my mother's past, uh, my biggest boosters, and my father is still uh, at 91, cheering me on from Boca Raton. Wow. He's probably watching tonight, so be good to me. I'll, I'm just saying. I'll be on my, well, there, you know, there's actually another reason I'm gonna, I'm, I'm careful. Um, you know, you, you've cultivated this reputation until recently as this mild-mannered member of Congress who tends not to offend people. Um, you uh, were a member of the Blue Dog Democrats. Uh, folk, you know, you went to this obscure committee that is not on TV, that doesn't tend to attract headlines, House Intelligence. Um, <laughs> and um, the House leadership put you in charge of this investigation, partly because it was thought that you are less, to less toxic, that you do, that maybe you, you are less likely to antagonize some parts of the country. I wonder, I mean, indeed, as you undertake this investigation, to what extent your aim is, indeed, to undertake it in a way that, to the extent possible, will avoid unnecessary polarization, that will to some degree, try to win over you know, those six people in Wisconsin who have not yet made up their mind. You know, I, that is certainly going to be my effort, and it has been my effort. But I have to say, um, given the kind of polarized environment we're in, given the constant barrage of presidential attacks and their amplification on Fox primetime, it may not matter, uh, or I may not be able to overcome to a meaningful degree this kind of onslaught um, in reaching those people with an open mind, but I'm still gonna try. Um, you know, up until very recently, uh, a lot of the criticism I was getting was for saying, slow down with this rush towards impeachment. I was not someone who was out as an early champion of impeaching the president. I ran against somebody involved in impeachment when I defeated a incumbent 20 years ago. I tried an impeachment case in the Senate involving a corrupt judge about 10 years ago. Um, I have more experience with this issue than a lot of my colleagues. Um, and I know there are two cases ultimately you need to make. You need to make a case to the Senate to convict, but you also need to be able to make the case to the American people. And I wasn't sure until this most recent series of um, I think the most egregious allegations came to light whether we could make that case to the American people. But that case is being made, uh, and attitudes are changing. Um, and so there are still people with an open mind, and those are the ones that I'm trying to speak to. The, you face a trade-off, especially as uh, there is litigation about disclosure of providing certain information from the White House. Uh, that if you wait, then it, that will take longer to get that information. On the other hand, you also face a calendar that at some point is gonna run up into an election year. So how do you weigh that trade-off? And would you, you know, are you eager to, to delay this if necessary to get more information? Or do you feel a need to, you know, largely finish your investigation by the end of this calendar year, for example? We, we are trying to move both methodically and with a real sense of urgency. And I think if you look at the, the last 
week and this week uh, and the almost daily or daily interviews that we are conducting, you can see the pace is rapid. Uh, at the same time, we're trying to do this in an organized way. And what we may find, depending on you know, what kind of a buzzsaw of opposition we run into at the White House and how complete uh, their stonewalling is and how successful their stonewalling is, and, and frankly, because of the courage of Masha Yovanovitch uh, and Dr. Fiona Hill and others who are obeying the law when they're served with a valid subpoena, um, we are learning new and important information uh, in the impeachment inquiry. Um, but having been a prosecutor, having done investigations before I was in Congress and while in Congress, I can tell you there are natural rhythms to an investigation and you get to waypoints where you can say it's going to be some time before we get the next increment of valuable evidence. Um, and we will have to evaluate as we go along do we need to make a decision now? Uh, is the evidence so substantial that we ought to decide now? Um, or can we take the time it will require to get the other information? Now, whatever we decide, and there's been no decision made as to whether we bring articles or if we did what those articles would look like, that doesn't necessarily mean that the investigative work comes to an end. Um, because at the end of the day, this is all about protecting the country. What the president did in coercing an ally to do these political prosecutions involving his adversary was jeopardize our national security. And if there is other conduct that needs to be exposed to protect the country, we're going to do that however long it takes. And that timetable may not be the same timetable as the one in which we'll have to make a decision on impeachment. Does that mean that the investigation could well continue as primaries are underway next year? The, you know, the, the, um, the answer is I don't know. I don't know. Um, a lot will depend on how successful they are at stonewalling. Um, so far, there have been real uh, breaks, significant breaks in the White House firewall. Um, it was their intention to prevent us from interviewing any witnesses. Um, they are failing at that. Uh, at the same time, we fully expect on things that are more within their control, they will stonewall us. Uh, and as we have seen over the last nine months, when we've gone to court, we win. Uh, and the courts have not only been siding with the Congress, they have been making uh, short shrift of the Trump administration arguments. Uh, the, the opinions against the Trump administration thus far, and we won another victory in the Court of Appeals, have been the jurisprudential equivalent of don't let the door hit you in the ass on the way out. Um, and, but, but nonetheless, nonetheless, it's taken time. And even though these, these arguments about privilege are completely fallacious and um, the White House counsel should be ashamed, um, to, to advocate that a conversation with the pre president is privileged, but also a conversation with the president when he wasn't the president is privileged, and also even if you're not talking to the president, it's privileged, and even if you never talk to the president, I mean, this could be privileged. Uh, when you read that kind of opinion, it's embarrassing for any lawyer to put their name to that. Um, but they know that they can draw out the clock, and we have made it abundantly clear since we began the impeachment inquiry that any stonewalling 
um, will be considered as evidence of obstruction of Congress and may build an article of impeachment based on obstruction. And what's more, that we may draw an adverse inference as to the underlying evidence. That is, if they prevent a certain witness coming forward that we know has information on a certain meeting, discussion, whatnot, we can draw the adverse inference that if they testified, um, it would contradict the president or incriminate the president. Given the desire to reach out to all Americans, is it a mistake not to have the full House vote to launch the investigation? I, I, I take the point that it's not legally necessary, but doesn't it open the Democrats to criticism that they are not doing something that hasn't been done with presidential impeachment investigations in the past? Well, first of all, in ter terms of the, the law and the Constitution, the Constitution says that um, the House shall have the sole power of impeachment. So there is really no question about uh, any constitutional requirement um, of a vote to launch, formally launch an impeachment inquiry. So no question, and no court would ever intrude itself into the decision about how the House wants to conduct an impeachment proceeding. Now, we may have a vote on an impeachment proceeding, or, or we may not have a vote. Uh, ultimately, that will be a decision that we make together with our leadership. But no one should be under the apprehension or the misapprehension that were we to vote and authorize by the full vote of the House an impeachment inquiry, that that would in any way stop the White House complaints, attacks, et cetera. They would just move on to the next hurdle they wanted to put in the way. So we should be clear about what's happening here. Um, this is merely an effort to delay, distract, deter, and we will not be delayed, and we won't be distracted, and we will not be deterred. Um, One of the delay, distract, deter uh, initiatives that President Trump has taken has been very much focused on your characterization of that phone call, your parody of that phone call. In retrospect, do you regard that as a mistake to have done that? You know, honestly, I regard it the same way as having a vote on an uh, impeachment resolution. They will attack whatever they can attack. Um, you wrote a wonderful column uh, with the headline, um, Ukraine, that's a nice country, it'd be a shame if something happened to it. A lot of what you wrote was a parody of the president's call, much like my own. Um, yours was better. Um, <laughs> if the president thought it advantageous to attack the New York Times by saying that you were misrepresenting the real contents of the call, he would. And he'd be attacking you every day. Uh, I don't think your column was a mistake. I think they will he will attack the New York Times whenever it's to his advantage, and he will attack me the same way. Um, but I will agree with my critics on this. The call is damning enough. Um, what the president said in that call was that he wanted this other president who was desperate for a White House meeting. In order to get that meeting, that summit between these two leaders, which was vital to his legitimacy as the new president of Ukraine, vital to show the Russians who still occupy his lands that he had a relationship with the most powerful patron of Ukraine, um, the president said, in the context of the, the ask for that meeting, the need for more military support, the Javelin anti-tank weapons, I have a favor, though. Uh, there's something we want you to do, though. Um, and for the President of the United States to condition either one of those things, 
to merely ask, without condition, that yet another country involve itself in our elections is repugnant, it's a violation of his oath of office, it's a betrayal of our national security. Here we have these wonderful diplomats like Ambassador Yavanovich, who, who are trying to impress upon Ukraine the need to rid itself of corruption, and what is the President of the United States asking this new President to do? To be corrupt. To be corrupt, like he is. And that, that's a disaster for American diplomacy. Um, and, uh, and so the call record of that speaks for itself. Now the call record, let me ask about that for a moment. One of the things that has puzzled us is that if you, it's a 30 minute call, if you read it out, it lasts about 10 minutes. Uh, there are various ellipses. Do you have confidence that that memorandum of that call is indeed accurate? Well, I, I would expect that it's accurate as far as it goes. The question is, is it complete? There are ellipses, and we don't know what takes place in those ellipses. Um, we do not know at this point whether there is, a, is or was a recording of that call. Um, on the American side, we don't know whether there is or was a recording on the Ukraine side. The Ukraine gets a vote here too. Um, they're on the other end of that call. We do not know whether there is a more complete record of that call, but we are determined to find out. President Zelensky, if you're watching, <laughs> send me the audio. Um, one of the striking things about that call is also that it served Russian interests. It, I mean, it benefited Russia to have a cooling between Washington and President Zelensky, and it benefited Russia to have a delay in the provision of almost $400 million in military equipment to Ukraine. And the narrative that President Trump has pursued about uh, it was actually Ukraine that had interfered in the 2016 elections. I mean, that's a Moscow, that's a Putin narrative. Do you, are you investigating whether Russia may have planted some of these ideas in, uh, whether, whether President Trump may have been acting to some degree intentionally, unintentionally at the behest of Moscow in his actions vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine? There have been a whole host of um, pro-Russian narratives coming out of the president's mouth almost since he was elected. Uh, I can remember one of the first, and I thought one of the most damaging, was when he was on Sean Hannity's program. And Hannity asked him, why can't you criticize Putin? You criticize everyone else, why can't you criticize Putin? The man is a killer. And the president's answer was, are we so different? Um, that is exactly the message that Putin wants to get across, that the struggle going on right now is not between uh, Democrats and autocrats, not democracy and autocracy. Um, it's between autocrats and hypocrites. That America is no different, America is no better. Um, and that was exactly, and is exactly the narrative you hear from Donald Trump. Um, but you, you also over time heard Donald Trump echoing the Russian talking points on the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, uh, which he said was to fight terror, which of course was not at all um, what that invasion was about. Um, you heard him echo Russian talking points about the Montenegrins. Um, and now you hear the president 
raising these conspiracy theories about the 2016 election, and, and they're so convoluted, they're hard to actually get your head around. The president brings up CrowdStrike in that call with President Zelensky before he brings up the Bidens, and the theory of that is the Russians didn't really hack the DNC, that I guess presumably maybe Ukraine did, and the server's actually in Ukraine. Physically in Ukraine. Physically in Ukraine, and CrowdStrike was the security form hired by the DNC, and they must have, I don't know, somehow concocted this Russian narrative. Well, that whole bizarre, down the rabbit hole, kooky conspiracy theory is courtesy of Russia. This is the Russian story. Hey, we didn't intervene, it was the Ukrainians. Uh, and, you know, somebody today pointed out, I can't remember who it was, and I wish I'd come up with it, that the Russians are winning so much they're going to get tired of winning. Um, <laughs> they, they've got the President of the United States um, parroting their talking points. They've got the President of the United States tearing down his own intelligence agencies. They've got the President of the United States saying effectively that he thinks Ukraine did it, not the Russians. They've got the President of the United States disastrously um, green-lighting the Turkish invasion of Syria, betraying our Kurdish allies. The Kurds now have had to go to the Russians with hat in hand because they could not rely on the President of the United States. Um, and what the President has done with his actions vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine has so weakened Ukraine um, that it's put Ukraine in a more vulnerable position as it's negotiating uh, an end to the conflict um, within Ukrainian territory. So it's hard to imagine a series of events since the, Donald Trump became president that has been more beneficial to Russia. You, you spoke today, uh, or Fiona Hill, the, who was the Russia, uh, senior director for Russia Affairs in the National Security Council, uh, gave her deposition. Do you have any information that President Trump and President Putin in their, either in their July 31st phone call or in their meeting in Osaka uh, or in their previous meetings in Paris or Helsinki, whether they discussed Ukraine, whether in those conversations there was some, uh, you know, wh whether that is where this came from? Um, I'm, I'm not going to comment on, on Just Dr. Between us. testimony. <laughs> Just between you and I and the, the 900 people here. Um, the only thing I, I'll say about Dr. Hill, and I will say this about uh, Ambassador Yovanovitch as well, these are two of the most impressive, not just witnesses, but the most impressive women to testify before Congress in the 20 years I've been in Congress. Um, they are, and I, I want to emphasize this, they are adamantly nonpartisan. They are career public servants. And I wish that half the people in the administration or out of the administration would show the courage they've shown. Um, well, let me ask about Ambassador Yovanovitch then. So one thread involving Ukraine is the one you mentioned in the, in the phone call. Another thread is that President Trump removed Ambassador Yovanovitch, uh, which is something that benefited Lev Parnas and Igor Fruman, 
who had financial interests that might benefit if she was removed and had donated $630,000 of money that may have been Russia's to political candidates and, and political action committees in the US. Um, is that another potential threat of investigation that ties the president to corrupt behavior in Ukraine? I'm going to say it won't come as any surprise to you. I'm not going to get into specific factual allegations. You know, I can't tell you in terms of the scope of what we're looking at. We want to understand all the circumstances that went into that call, everything that took place before that call. Um, and of course, Mr. Giuliani has spoken publicly about a lot of his ambitions in Ukraine, which included getting Ukraine to dig up dirt uh, on the president's feared rival. Um, we want to know what took place after that call. We want to know the circumstances surrounding the conditionality of that desperately sought meeting between the two presidents. We want to know the circumstances around the suspension of military aid. We want to know about the effort made to cover all this up, uh, the practice of putting these call records in a classified file where they don't belong, uh, a file where you would have some of the most top secret things like covert action um, sequestered away. Uh, and you know some of the issues you were mentioned are well within those facts and circumstances, and we want to get to the bottom of it. Um, and, and I think we are. And, uh, and I have to say, when you consider how much we have learned in the last three weeks, it's breathtaking. Um, it's terrifying. Um, it's also breathtaking. And, um, and I do think one of the reasons it is having the impact it is on the country is that we are learning it all at once. The Mueller investigation took place, played out over more than two years. And the public learned about it in drips and drabs. And I think because the public learned about it that way, some of the public failed to see the seriousness of what Bob Mueller un uncovered. Had it come out all at one time, had the American people learned, for example, that the Russians offered dirt on Hillary Clinton, put it in writing, described it as part of the government effort to help the Trump campaign, sought a meeting with that campaign, got a meeting with the campaign manager, the president's son and son-in-law, lied about it, the president dictated that lie, had they learned about that all at once, not to mention the sharing of polling data and all the rest of that, the country would have had a very different reaction. Um, the country has learned about the president's misconduct in Ukraine all at once. And I think that has dramatically impacted public opinion. And, and, and also because it's not the first time. And, and you know what is so striking to me, and, and as I've wrestled with this question of impeachment, up until the Ukraine misconduct came to light, it seemed to me the most powerful argument for impeachment was also the most powerful argument against it, and that is, if you don't impeach a president who engages in this kind of gross abuse of his power, what does it say to the next Congress and the next president about how they can behave and get away with it? Um, at the same time, if you do impeach a president and he's acquitted by the Senate, what does that say to the next president and the next Congress? This is the dilemma 
that we face when a party, as the GOP has to date, and I hope it change, changes, is more devoted to the person of the president than to their own party, their own government, their own institution. Um, and one of the things that I think um, weighs on me is the fact that this call took place the day after Bob Mueller testified, which says to me that the president walked away from those two years thinking he can do anything he wants, he can abuse his power, he can be as corrupt as he likes, and there will be no accounting. And that is a dangerous thing for the United States of America. As you say, we've learned so much in the last few weeks. Um, and it is clear that after the Ukraine phone call, there were many people in the White House intelligence community who were aghast. And yet it's not clear to me that if that one whistleblower had not stepped forward, both within the agency apparently and within the whistleblower route, it's not clear that we would know any of this. And that makes me wonder if there are other crises that we don't know about because a whistleblower didn't uh, step up. And you mentioned the phone calls that had been sequestered. Uh, there were also phone calls between uh, President Trump and the Saudis that were sequestered in that way. Um, we don't know what happened in the phone call between President Trump and, and, uh, and Erdogan uh, of Turkey. Do you, I mean, is, are you, to what extent do you see your mandate as also poking around on some of these other issues that don't directly involve Ukraine? Well, as far as the impeachment inquiry goes, I see my mandate as focused on Ukraine. As the chair of the Intelligence Committee, though, who has a deep concern with our national security writ large, but also the counterintelligence risks posed by a president who engages in misconduct with other leaders and therefore can be exposed or blackmailed or compromised, um, I'm interested in any misconduct of the president, and all Americans should be. Uh, and I would hope that others that have seen misconduct that threatens the country would, would come forward as this whistleblower has. Now, there's a reason why the president is saying that <clears throat> this whistleblower or others that speak out are traitors and spies. And they ought to be treated as traitors and spies, and we used to execute traitors and spies. Because he wants to chill anyone from exposing his wrongdoing. I, part of the reason why the president is so furious with me is he believes it's his God-given right to be as corrupt as he wants and not suffer the inconvenience of being exposed. Um, and that's not a God-given right. It's not a constitutionally given right. Um, indeed, quite the opposite. It's our constitutional obligation to hold him accountable. Um, and we were reluctant to go down this road. We've been forced to go down this road by the president. We take no joy in this. You know, I, I've been in Congress almost 20 years. People ask me, do you, do you enjoy your job? You know, up to the last three years, I could say yes without any hesitation. There is nothing enjoyable about this. 
this is a grave undertaking for the country. Um, I think any of us would have preferred that the president were conducting himself with honor and with decency and uh, with respect for the rule of law, but that is not the president we have. And, and so we do what we must. And there's a larger debate underway in the country about how deeply President Trump has damaged institutions and norms. And there is one view that he has, and the polarization of the country, have deeply damaged uh, the, the country in ways that will take a long time to recover. There's also a contrary view that one can have that this is a little like Watergate, and that the aftermath of Watergate was some public recognition uh, of the importance of institutions, the importance of norms, the importance of checks and balances, and that that actually led to a uh, refreshing of American democracy. Do you, we're at that point. Well, fork. you are an optimist, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> I, look, I, look, I'm an optimist as well. We're gonna get through this. Um, I have every confidence we're gonna get through this. But what we do over the next year will determine how much further damage is done, how long it will take to mitigate the damage. The damage the president did just this week alone in Syria is incalculable to our standing, to the degree to which our allies can trust us and count on us. I mean, the Kurds fought side by side. They died side by side. And to have betrayed them this way tells our allies and others that they should place more trust in Vladimir Putin uh, to stand by his allies than the President of the United States. When the President of the United States says that he's not worried about ISIS fighters returning home because they're gonna go to Europe, um, you can imagine how well that's received uh, in Europe. And those folks returning to Europe, by the way, we got to care about them because they're danger to Europe, they're danger to us too. But we are already writing our post-Watergate reforms now. Um, and I have no doubt that they will be bipartisan. Um, the, the Republicans now will not support them because they'll get attacked by Fox primetime and the president, and they'll be on his Twitter bad list. Um, but they understand what damage the president is doing. Um, they understand the, the imperative of the, the reforms and remedies we're gonna need after this chapter. But I will say this about the difference between Watergate and now. A lot of people have pointed to the discovery of tapes, the existence of tapes as being the difference. The call record is our tapes. But that isn't really the difference between then and now. The difference between then and now is not the presence of tapes, but the presence of Fox. And that conservative ecosystem allows his supporters to live in an alternate reality. Um, I'm fully of the view that if Richard Nixon had Fox News, he would have never been forced to leave office. Um, one of my favorite chapters, favorite's probably not the right word, of Watergate, was when the tapes were discovered and the president came up, Nixon came up with this very Trumpian solution. He didn't want to turn them over. Um, so he said, let's give them to James Stennis, this conservative old senator. Um, let's let him tell the country what's on them. Well. Stennis was not only a very conservative Democrat from the South, he was also notoriously deaf. <laughs> so it was, let's give him to the deaf guy. Right. 
and he can tell the country what's on them. And of course, the tapes were not easy to listen to. They, we didn't have the same technology we do today. That idea was ridiculed. It went nowhere. They were forced to release the tapes. If Donald Trump made that suggestion today, he would be applauded on Fox primetime. This is the kind of brilliant, out-of-the-box thinking we've come to expect of the president. And the only reason Democrats don't want James Stennis, a fellow Democrat, to listen to these tapes is because they know he's an honest man and there's nothing incriminating on those tapes. And that's why they won't allow this beautiful compromise that preserves executive privilege but lets the country know what's on them. And this is why the comparisons to Watergate, uh, I think, are really inept. We're not in the same national place. We don't have Howard Baker, we don't have Barry Goldwater. Uh, we, 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 don't have we, we don't have John McCain. Right. We don't have um, the great institutionalists. And we have this very powerful propaganda. Um, and we do have um, whistleblowers, do, or do we? Um, <laughs> The, uh, so there, there, there are reports of multiple whistleblowers. Um, can I ask you about that? You can always ask. <laughs> um, I'm not sure it'll get you very far, but. <laughs> Let, thank you. Let me ask something else about um, the uh, whistleblower. You were, you were criticized uh, not just on Fox, but the Washington Post gave you four Pinocchios for being evasive about contacts. Uh, I think on Morning Joe, uh, you said something to the fact that we've, we've had no contact with, with the whistleblower. And then it later turned out that the committee had. Do you regret that? I was asked if we'd heard from the whistleblower. Um, and what I meant to say, and what I should have said, is that um, we had not heard from the whistleblower since they filed a complaint. Um, the whistleblower did come to the committee and uh, contacted staff to ask advice, and they were advised, get an attorney and go talk to the IG. Um, we had no further contact with the whistleblower after they sought that advice. And if you look at my full answer um, on that segment, I was talking about our efforts to have the whistleblower come in and testify, uh, and how we couldn't get the Director of National Intelligence to instruct the whistleblower how they could testify. But I should have been much more clear. The question, I only realized in retrospect, was broader than my answer. Um, and I should have been far more clear in my answer. You, you sort of alluded to this, but um, the person who you defeated in, a, in 2000 to enter Congress, James Rogan, had been an, a, a manager of the impeachment of Bill Clinton. And um, presumably thought that that had, would help him. Do you... There, there are certainly some House members and some senators who are going to be up for election. And I mean, I, I think of Doug Jones in Alabama uh, running for re-election. Do you worry that whether because of Fox News, whether because of polarization, that this investigation is going to end up hurting some of these Democrats like Doug Jones uh, in the same way that it hurt James Rogan when you first ran for office? Um, I don't focus uh, and I really don't do the analyses of how does this cut in 2020. Um, I can understand why people are really interested, concerned about that. I don't think that's the question I should be asking myself. Um, 
there are good arguments that can be made about this base being more excited or that base being more excited by an impeachment. I think the question that we need to ask ourselves in Congress is, is this the right thing to do for the country? Uh, and let the chips fall where they may. Um, and in fact, I believe I'm correct in saying that you have not taken a position on impeachment as such. Uh, in terms of whether we should uh, vote out articles of impeachment, I have not. Um, and I think that's a decision that we should make in consultation with our, our members, um, with our leadership, and after a lot of uh, reflection about um, the evidence that we have uncovered, what it says about the president's um, betrayal of his office, and whether this is the right remedy. Speaking of remedies, we, ha we have a question, um, some good questions here. We have a question about um, um, the sort of inherent contempt. And there, you know, there's been discussion uh, about the power of Congress to compel uh, testimony, for example, from people and lock people up if need be and somewhere in some makeshift jail in the, in the Capitol building. Um, you're sending the, I guess, the sergeant at arms out to grab somebody and locking them up. Is that something that is on the table? Have you had discussions in the House leadership of something like that? Well, <laughs> as attractive as that is to visualize, um, yeah. <laughs> and we have a long list of candidates. Uh, it is something that we, we have entertained, are entertaining, um, not so much from the, the practice that was used up until the 1930s where, as you say, there was a jail in the Capitol and people who didn't show up when they were supposed to testify or produce documents, we would send the sergeant at arms out to arrest. Um, we have thought about it uh, with a more modern application which is imposing a daily fine on someone until they comply. And not a fine that their agency pays but a, a fine that would adhere to their person. Um, the difficulty is, you know, whether we use that mechanism or we revive the ability to actually go out and arrest people, you still end up litigating it. You litigate it through a habeas corpus petition if you go out and try to arrest somebody, or you litigate it through uh, an effort to garnish their wages since Congress on its own doesn't have the mechanism to garnish someone's wages. Uh, so it doesn't necessarily cure the problem of time and the stonewalling uh, goal of the administration. So we haven't ruled it out, um, but it's not a cure-all either. And it does sound like you have ruled out actually sending the sergeant-at-arms out and locking somebody up in a cell and putting that on C-SPAN. Uh, you know, I've ruled it out, uh, but others have not, uh, and it's not, it won't be my decision alone. Um, somebody we haven't spoken of yet this evening was involved in the Ukraine episode, and that's Mike Pence. And um, Mike Pence, um, <laughs> as if we don't have enough to talk about. Um, so Mike Pence, uh, he, his trip to Ukraine for the inauguration of President Zelensky uh, was canceled, was downgraded, apparently as a way of putting pressure on, on Zelensky. Uh, then he spoke to President Zelensky on September 1st, uh, the issue of corruption evidently came up, which seems to be a code word for going and investigating the Bidens. He spoke again with President Zelensky, I think, on September 17th. Um, shouldn't we, if we're trying to provide accountability, shouldn't we also be 
thinking about Vice President Pence. Um, I think we, we ought to find out where the responsibility lies um, for the President's uh, grievous misconduct. And as you know from the whistleblower complaint, um, there are allegations involving the role of the Attorney General. Um, there are issues involving, potentially involving the Vice President, and I say potentially because we, we don't know. Um, uh, we don't know what the Secretary of State's role in all this was. But we should find out, um, and we are endeavoring to find out uh, with the witnesses we are bringing in um, what role in any of this uh, they played. Uh, the role the Attorney General is still playing in the counter-investigation is deeply concerning as he travels around the world doing whatever he's doing. Um, and uh, for, for, for all those who are, by the way, um, and you and I were talking about this backstage about why are you doing hearings in closed session and we'll be doing them in closed and open session, I wish some of them were calling for some transparency about what the Attorney General is doing around the world. Um, you, would, you would think some of those calling for transparency would be equally interested in that transparency. Um, but I fear that the Attorney General is doing what he has done from the start, which is represent the interests of the person of Donald Trump, not the interests of the American people. So what happened to Bill Barr? I mean, here is a lawyer who was reasonably respected. Uh, he seemed a, a reasonable, capable lawyer. Uh, you were a prosecutor early in your career. And Bill Barr, since becoming attorney general, has seemed to kind of go off the deep end and become the president's personal lawyer. I mean, uh, he's become a second Giuliani. He has, he has. Um, uh, Robert Caro, I think, uh, once wrote that power doesn't corrupt as much as it reveals. And power has revealed who Bill Barr is. And um, it has revealed someone who is more than willing to sacrifice the interests of his department, the interest of justice, in order to serve this unethical president. And I can't explain why he would be willing to do that, um, whether it's a desire to be relevant again or it's this fringe unitary executive theory in which he believes that his role is to be the president's hand, no matter how unethically he may seek to move that hand. I don't know, but I can say I think he's the second most dangerous person in the country because in his own way, he is as much a, of a threat to the rule of law as the President of the United States. And he is running the Department of Justice. The Department of Justice. Uh, Todd asks uh, about this question of, of transparency. And, uh, and this is something that you've been criticized for on the right, the Wall Street Journal had an editorial today complaining that the hearings are closed. Uh, some Republicans have asked for full transcripts to be made available and have complained that things are being cherry-picked and leaked. Uh, and Todd uh, 
asks, uh, how can we win public opinion if the key testimony for impeachment are private? Well, you know, first of all, um, we're doing these initial hearings in closed session, and it makes a lot of sense to do that uh, when you're conducting an investigation because I'm sure the White House would like nothing more than to be able to get their stories straight by hearing what these witnesses have to say. Um, and there are good and important investigative reasons not to let one witness know what another witness has said. Um, the Republicans who are complaining, um, and I have to chuckle, uh, they leave the interviews in the middle of the interview um, and go out to the press and speak about the interview as they're complaining about leaks. Um, it really is breathtaking. I give them credit for, for um, a, you know, the most incredible chutzpah. Um, <laughs> but uh, um, I do think that it is important to conduct as much as we can when we can in open session. Of course, all these transcripts are going to be made public. Um, in what period? Well, you know, I don't want to give myself a date, but we want to make sure that we lock down the testimony of people before they can see what others have said, before it influences their own testimony. Um, and, you know, given that people have come before our committee and lied and had to be prosecuted, uh, Michael Cohen uh, pled guilty to lying to our committee, um, Roger Stone is uh, in trial for lying to our committee, um, there are no doubt others who would like to know what is being said so they can more skillfully potentially lie. Uh, and so we have a good investigative reason not to permit that to happen. Um, but it will be important to bring the country along for the investigation, to have witnesses testify in open session, to let the people evaluate the credibility of witnesses. Um, I do want to distinguish, though, between the process of investigation and impeachment in the House and the trial in the Senate. When the President talks about confronting witnesses, if it comes to a trial, if he is impeached in the House and it comes to a trial, they will have ample opportunity to confront any witnesses during the trial. The impeachment is more analogous to a grand jury proceeding, and there's a reason why grand jury proceedings are done in closed session. Um, but again, it's going to be a mix for us of interviews in closed session, interviews in open session. Some of the witnesses we interview in closed session, we may bring back in open session, but we are also going to be releasing all of these transcripts. I, I, you know, I also want to make a point, too, as the Republicans like to complain about fairness. The Republicans are equally represented at every interview, deposition, and hearing. They ask every question they wish to ask. Um, and so they're given fair and ample and equal opportunity to question these witnesses. Um, and uh, the fact that we're doing this in a methodical way and that it limits their ability to be a pipeline to the White House may frustrate them, but we're trying to meet the needs of the investigation. You made the uh, comparison with an indictment, um, but one of the points that Democrats have made and also scholars have made is that this isn't that this is in many ways a political process that what the founders envisioned and what Madison described is not so much a violation of statutes as an offense against the state against the government and that that is kind of what they envisioned for high crimes and misdemeanors so in that sense is indictment really the best model to pursue uh, and especially because, I mean, in this case, presumably if there is a trial, if there is impeachment, as 
certainly looks as if there will be, then it's hard to imagine that Senator McConnell is actually going to have a real trial that has that lasts very long, that has witnesses that 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 unfolds like that. You know, I, I think you're absolutely right that um, using the criminal law analogy is an imperfect one, and indictment and grand jury are an imperfect analogy. And you know, even though there's a jury in the Senate. It's not exactly a jury in the sense that it is weighing whether someone violated a very specific law. Um, the founders did not itemize everything they considered to be a crime or a misdemeanor, high crime or a misdemeanor. And indeed, what they had in mind when they said misdemeanor was not what we think of as a misdemeanor or a lesser crime. What they meant was misdemeaning in office. Um, and so yes, it is a political process. Um, and there are good reasons that, that, that part of that process should be conducted in the public eye. Um, but I will tell you, no, no two impeachments are alike. Um, Andrew Johnson was impeached within two weeks of his offense coming to light, one of his offenses coming to light. Uh, and so there was none of the exhaustive public hearings of Watergate. Um, and so I don't know that you can uh, say that each should be the same, needs to be the same. But I do believe that there, there, there is this commonality, and that is at the end of the day, you are making the case as much to the public as you are to the Senate. Um, and in making the case to the public, it's important that parts of that process be public. Um, and ideally, that be done in a way that doesn't sacrifice getting to the truth. There are a couple of questions uh, having to do with the Mueller uh, investigation. We're, we're kind of running out of time and going to turn into pumpkins pretty soon. But uh, but let me ask about that. Um, the you know during the Mueller investigation, there was so much anticipation on the part of of journalists of everybody else about what would be found on collusion, and in fact, what was the report on obstruction was was very startling. On collusion, uh, it was not. And there was a sense, I think, that, that a lot of people had gotten ahead of their skis and that, the, that, that what, was, what came up did not match that anticipation. Is there a risk now that this investigation is going to get people all fired up and then it is going to have the same sense of kind of that's what we've been waiting for all this time on, on this, the yeah. question of the Ukraine call and, and Trump? Well, I guess, first of all, I would say vis-a-vis -vis the Mueller investigation um, that what Mueller was able to prove was that the president invited Russian help. The, president, uh, the Russians were evidently listening when he did because they hacked or tried to hack the Clinton server uh, later that day. Um, that the Trump campaign welcomed that Russian help. They built that Russian help into their campaign, um, and then they lied about it, and then they obstructed justice into the investigation of it. Um, that's pretty damning. Um, now, what we already know about the president's misconduct vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine is even more damning. The way I view this, you had candidate Donald Trump seeking foreign help in an election. But candidate Donald Trump didn't have the power of the presidency behind that request. You had President Donald Trump obstruct justice, obstruct the investigation into his misconduct during the campaign. 
But you now have President Donald Trump using the full power of his office to coerce a dependent nation into intervening in our next presidential election. And those facts are not in dispute. Those are not in dispute. So we may learn a lot more. We've already learned that this meeting was being conditioned on the digging of dirt on his opponent. We may, we, we may learn more about the military aid, but what we know already, we should not lose sight of. Um, and, and so the country should take stock already with what we know and what it says about this president. And the country should ask itself, don't we have a right to expect more of the president of the United States? How can we, how can we have any confidence how can we have any confidence after this that the President of the United States in private discussions with foreign leaders is advocating for the United States and not his personal, political, banal, financial, or other interests? How can we have confidence? And the short answer is we can't. We can't. He's shown that time and time again. Um, so I don't want to raise people's expectations. I want people to look at what we already know. And I want people to ask whether they have a right to deserve more in a president of the United States. And can I, can I say one other thing? Because um, this is something that I really think if we expand the aperture beyond Ukraine, beyond the Mueller investigation, the people need to be aware of. There is a real challenge to liberal democracy all over the world right now. The very idea of liberal democracy is at risk. Um, and yes, it's at risk because of Russian malign influence operations. It's at risk because China is using its technological might to control its own people and exporting the technological me means for other autocrats to do the same thing. It's at risk because our president is making common cause with dictators and disdaining fellow democracies. It's at risk because of changes in the global economy through automation and globalization that are creating enormous fear and anxiety about people's economic futures, and populists are preying on those fears, um, there is a real rise of the autocrat. And we need to wake up and pay attention to it. It's a danger to our country, it's a danger to our children, it's a danger to our grandchildren. People around the world still look to us. We are still the indispensable nation. People who gathered in Tahrir Square, who were arrested, look to us. People uh, who are journalists in Turkey look to us from their prison cells. People in the Philippines who are the victims of mass extrajudicial killing, they look to us. As you know, people in Darfur look to us. They're not gonna look to the Russians, they're not gonna look to the Chinese, they're not gonna look to Europe with all of its problems. They're looking to us and increasingly, they don't recognize what they see. I think Democracy is facing its most, most profound challenge since the height of the Cold War, since the end of the Second World War. This is bigger than Trump. It started before Trump. It won't end with Trump. Um, we need to be using all the levers of our power, political, military, economic, to defend democracy. Um, we all in the post-World War II generation thought that we were on this inexorable path. 
Uh, as Martin Luther King said, the moral arc of the universe may be long, but it bends towards justice. And one of the ways it was bending towards justice is it was bending towards democracy around the world. But now we are at an inflection point. We cannot say that will be true next year or the year after. And so even as we get to the bottom of the president's misconduct with Ukraine, even as we let what Mueller found sink in, we cannot lose sight of the bigger picture. And the bigger picture is democracy is hanging in the balance. And we remain its best hope. That seems an opportune time to thank all of you for nabbing the best seat in town. <laughs> and thank you very much for uh, coming here, for well, joining us, answering please, uh, all these questions, and for undertaking well, at this moment. And please thank me and join me in thanking Nicholas Kristoff for his marvelous work and for moderating tonight. Thanks for listening. 92i Talks is supported by a generous endowment established by Daphne Reconati Kaplan and Thomas S. Kaplan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and find more great conversations at 92iondemand.org.